Hello and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. I am Jensen Beeler and with me today is the ever illustrious Neil Morrison and the not quite as illustrious, but we still kind of like him, Steve English. Hey boys, how you doing? Not too bad. Thanks, JB. How are you? I'm a little bit offended, JB, to be honest, but uh, apart from that, all good. Well, you know, like Neil's in the MotoGP paddock <laughs> and you're you're just off in World Superbike now, Stephen, and you're just, it's just not the same. It's just not the same stature. Uh, you've moved down in my world. Mo- moved across, JB. It's a world championship still. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so obviously we're into the summer break for the MotoGP season and the World Superbike season, which means our listeners are probably thirsty for some some audio content, and that's what we're here to do. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to just remind everyone to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast, and on Twitter it is at paddockpasspod. Uh, you can find the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave us a rating and a review. We really thrive on your feedback and obviously need your ratings to uh, navigate iTunes' crazy, 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 crazy search engine algorithm that's just an absolute nightmare to deal with, but such is the nature of life. Um, and then on SoundCloud, you can leave comments on the, the show right at the uh, the timestamp of when you hear something, which is, I think, a pretty cool feature. So two things I want to throw out there for our listeners to, to go see and do. And with that, boys, let's talk about some motorbikes. Neil, I think I want to start with you since, since you're the man in the paddock. Uh, looking back at the last nine races, who, who's been the standout performance for you? Who's been the rider that's that's caught your, your eye and your fancy? Um, I think if you look at what went on in um, winter and throughout the winter tests, and then you look at the championship table now, it would be hard not to say Mark Marquez, uh, just because of the, the, the amazing feats that he's been he's been doing on the 2016 Honda. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily been the fastest rider this year, um, but he's been the cleverest, uh, the most consistent, a guy that's been used in his mind more than possibly any time in his career. Um, and one that's been showing, you know, a level of maturity, um, that wasn't always present when he was, um, you know, when he was winning 2013 and 14. Other than Marquez, I'd have to say Valentino again. Um, I thought, the end of 2015, the way he reacted to losing the championship um, suggested that he thought that that was his final opportunity, um, that a chance to, to, to win regularly and to push for, for a title wasn't going to come around again. Um, and well, up until the, the last two races of the season, um, going into Aston, you said that he was still very much in the title race. Now, maybe not much, not, not, uh, not as much. Um, but at the same time, you know, the fact that Rossi, I think, has probably been the fastest rider this year has been uh, has been mildly impressive again. I think if we'd had this conversation at the beginning of the season and you told me Marquez, I would have, I would have scolded you for, for the safest answer you could probably come up with. But he really has taken a step with his maturity this season, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, you know, he... He, he's kind of said several times this year that he's had to fight him, you know, fight against himself when he's been on the bike. You know, he has two voices in his head. One that's telling him to push like crazy, you know, ride the ragged edge and try and fight for the win at all, at all costs. And then there's this other voice, which is, you know, I kind of think um, partly down to, well, a lot down to his team. You know, they've, they've kind of been trying to drill it into him that, you know, all he needs to do is finish in certain situations, collect points. Um, and, and, you know, he's kind of been following that. Uh, I think we saw at, at Mugello and at Catalonia that, you know, he was risking a lot up to a certain point. 
But then you you go to Aston, um, and he saw that Valentino had crashed. He saw that Lorenzo was having a total nightmare, and he was able just to kind of to, to bring it home, you know, for a save twenty points. And I don't think we've ever seen Marquez celebrate a, a second place like that, um, you know, which shows that you know he's thinking about the bigger picture and he's thinking about um, where he will be in Valencia at the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, you look at him just now; he's forty eight points ahead of Lorenzo. That's almost two races he could sit uh sit out and 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 still be in first place in the championship i don't think i would have predicted that going into this season but it, i don't know if it surprises me either especially since consistency has been such a strong theme for this season and and the lack of consistency from from other riders uh really seems to be defining the way the races are are coming about Stephen, who who do you see in as being the uh, the writer of the season so far? I, I I have to say like Marquez as well. Like he's been ridiculously strong. When you look at the consistency that we've seen from him, it's been uh, it's been something to behold. Like I, I talked to Mark in uh, the Hareth test in November last year, and one of the questions I asked him was, you know, if he was looking back at the 2015 season, what would he change? And he said, you know, the one thing he changed was be that he he'd try and be more consistent. He'd try and settle for settle for points and podiums rather than taking on everything to try and win a race and uh, you know, you sort of you sat there and you you listen to him say it and you take it with a pinch of salt because for his whole career he hasn't taken that approach but really for this year he's definitely taken that on and uh, definitely tried to make a step forward and just look at the bigger picture as Neil said it's an 18 race season is your goal to win as many races as possible or is it to win the world championship and I think Mark has really nailed his his uh, flags the mast on this one and it's about winning the championship and that's why he's won races whenever he's had the opportunity to win races and then he settled for second third place in the other races and apart from Le Mans he hasn't made any mistakes he's just been able to grind out results and I think when you look at the Michelins and the electronics and the big changes we've had for this year it's definitely one of those things that it's impressive to see that level of maturity from him because every other rider has made some massive mistakes the last two rounds, the Yamaha riders have combined for 15 points and uh, Mark's been able to pick up 45 and that's what swung the championship. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's flip it around. Who's been the disappointment for the season for, for you, Stephen? I think it's very difficult to not put Ian One in that. I think uh, coming into this year, we all expected Ian One to really make that uh, that next step. Like last year, he was really consistent. Pretty much every race, top four, top five, a lot of podiums. And I think everyone thought that this year he'd win races. He'd be able to be that guy that uh, Ducati could call on for maybe even a championship challenge this season. And instead, we've seen him crash out of races. We've obviously seen him take out his teammate. We've seen him clash with Lorenzo. And it, he's just looked sloppy and... The speed that everyone knows he has is now being uh, not so much questioned, but it's where everyone's looking more at the accidents rather than the potential firm. And that's fair enough. He's He's got enough of GP experience at this point that he should be avoiding incidents like that. But, uh, you know, Ducati really should have won a race by this point of the season, whether it's down to Ian O'Neill's instance or, you know, Davi uh, just not being able to quite uh, make that step. It is a case where Ducati have definitely disappointed. And I think it's hard not to think that Ian O'Neill is the biggest disappointment of the season so far. I think I disagree with you just like wholeheartedly, because for me at least, and, and maybe I'm a hater, like I just see it as Ian O'Neill being Ian O'Neill. Like if you, I think in fact, you and I had this conversation at the beginning of the season. Uh, I forget what episode it was, but you know, full credit to Iannone, he's a fast rider, but 
he just doesn't have the brain for it. He just doesn't have the consistency and the maturity. And I think this season just highlights explicitly just that deficiency. And I think it cost him, it cost him his contract for next year. And, and truth be told, I think if, if I had to have a standout performance, I think it would be the Ducatis, just not the factory Ducatis. I look at what the satellite riders are doing and the performance that, that they're putting together. I mean, Hector Barber is seventh in the championship, you guys. Hector Barber. Let's just let's just sit there and think about that for a minute. And there's there's been good performances that we've seen from Petrucci. We had uh, some moments of brilliance from Yanni Hernandez in the rain before he uh, he crashed. And you know Scott Redding seems to have taken the the next step uh, at moments. And you know Eugene Laverty. And it seems like everyone that's not on a factory Ducati is is performing at a level higher than I think most people would have given them credit for at the start of the of the MotoGP season. Yeah, and it's it's important to remember like Hector Barber is always a guy that's always going to be the butt of a lot of jokes, but he's a, a former 125 title contender, 250 Grand Prix winner and you know, he was a, a front row man on the uh on the Ducati at Mugello in 2012. Like he's he's been, you know, fast at at different times in his career and this is the first time where we've really seen him be able to grind out some results. I think uh, you know, and that shows by him being the top Ducati rider in the championship. But uh, no one looks at uh, Ducati's performance and bases it on satellite bikes that are two years old. They look at it, Ducati's performance and base it on the current bike. And the factory boys have disappointed. I think that uh, Barbara and Laverty have really been able to step it up this year and and have an awful lot of impressive performance. I think you know, Eugene in uh, in Argentina was a standout moment for him. But I think Hareth, he was very strong in a couple of other races as well, where his times were, were very consistent. And... You know, those two guys have definitely done a lot to impress a lot of the paddock um, so far this year. But uh, as far as, you know, the overall picture of, of MotoGP is concerned, you're always based it on what the factory guys are doing. And, you know, Ducati haven't lived up to preseason expectations at all. Uh, for sure. For sure. And I think that's something I think I want us to touch on later in the show is maybe um, Lorenzo's move to Ducati and what that can mean for them. Uh, but, but Neil, what... Who do you think has been kind of the letdown of the of the season so far? Yeah, I would have to go along with Steve and say that you know he's definitely been one of them. Um, you know, last year, two thousand and fifteen, he seemed to have turned the corner, found that consistency, found that ability to use his head, be very intelligent on the bike. And this year, there's just been at times a lack of that. Um, it's also been slightly disconcerting that when he has been in promising positions and thrown it away, he hasn't had an explanation for it. He's just said that he's been on the limit and one lap he's on the limit and he doesn't crash and then the next lap he's on the limit and he does crash and he can't really find a solution or find an understanding of, of what's happened. You know, I think you look at uh, at several races this year, you look at Qatar, um, obviously Argentina was a, was a huge, huge mistake, but I think, you know, Mugello and Le Mans, you know, those are two races that, um, that the Ducati bosses felt that they could definitely win. Um, and in both time, both instances, you know, he, you know, he crashed out of Le Mans. He made an absolutely awful start in Mugello. Just, you know, it was really hard to understand what was going on in the first couple of laps there. And then he was the fastest guy towards the end of the race. So, you know, there were opportunities for, for him to, um, for him to have, have, have broken that, you know, Ducati duck, that winning duck, which goes all the way back to 2010. Um, I know you were at World Ducati Week um, in Misano, Jensen, and Casey Stoner was there and he was asked, you know, what he thought the limitations of this, of this bike were. And he wasn't really able to put his finger on anything. You know, he said the engine's okay. He said the chassis is pretty decent. You know, the aerodynamics are fine. 
Um, he said that maybe, you know, they can still work on some things with attorney and stuff like that. But, you know, what, what Casey was, was basically alluding to was, um, you know, had one of the Ducati guys won a race early in the year, um, they could have very much found the confidence then to, you know, to go on and, and, and win more races, um, you know, rather than having this, you know, this kind of, uh, this, this, this thing on their back that's holding them back. So, yeah, so I would have to say, you know, as well, I think he's been, he's been a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, and I think like the monkey became a gorilla and now it's King Kong. And we've seen it time and time again where Ducati have started seasons strong, but they haven't been able to push forward. And, you know, you look back at last year, a lot of podiums at the start of the season, a lot of times where they were potentially able to challenge for a win, weren't quite able to make that step. And now this year, similar kind of patterns developed with uh, Ian Ona and Davi actually having good pace, but just something always happening to get in their way. And the problem with that happening is in the second half of the season, as everyone gets to understand their bikes completely, the Marquez's, Lorenzo's, Rossi's and Pedroza's get stronger and stronger and more consistent. And that's where it gets more difficult to try and break in and, and take those wins. I think we often get stuck talking about the the technical aspect of, of motorcycle racing, what's wrong with the bikes, what's going on with the tires and the teams and things like that. But you know, the mental side is such a huge part of it too. And that confidence over the summer break or, or that lack of confidence to go into the final part of the season, I think that, I think that can't be discounted. And with the Ducati guys, with Andrea, with the Andreas, I should say, um, I mean, I can't imagine how they would have that confidence going in into the Austrian round in Brno and, and the races afterwards. Well, the one thing that will give them a lot of confidence is just how strong Ducati were at the Austrian test a couple of weeks ago. But like bike racing is, I think it's easy to look at motor racing in general, whether it's cars, bikes, rallying, and, and just think that so much of it comes down to the machinery. But more than half of it comes down to the mentality of of the rider and the guy that's 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 at the controls. Because if they're not confident, if they're not feeling that they can win, they won't win regardless of how good the package is. And I think that uh, when the Ducati light riders line up on the grid, I think if they were taking a really hard, honest look at themselves, I don't think that they'd have confidence that they can win races. Because for one thing, Davi's only won one race. It was in the wet. Like he's had chances to win other races he's a good rider and he's shown time and time again how smart he is how adaptable he is but until you consistently win you can't have that confidence that you're that you're going to be able to get to the front and be able to win races you mentioned the the austrian test do you think that's a fair measurement considering that the honda bikes weren't there i would say so um because if you look at the other honda machines there um they were fairly far down i mean uh Crutzlow and the two mark vds bikes were there and you know they weren't really troubling the you know the the, the top places um i think you know, it's 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 a really fast track. It's essentially just a you know a couple of hairpins joined up by a big long swooping straights, and you know uh, you're going uphill, downhill. Um, really suits you know the the Ducati, which has like so much so much horsepower. Um, you know so much kick out of the turns. Um, you know I think yeah you you I would you know you wouldn't be surprised to see Marquez up there. He always is. You know he'll probably be in and around the, the top you know three or four positions. Um, but to have Ducatis, you know, pretty much. Um, you know, blanket covering the top six places. Um, we're not just talking about the factory guys. We're looking at, um, you know, guys like Hernandez, you know, the two Primac bikes were up there as well. Um, you would have to say that if there was a track on paper that was, you know, tailor made, um, drawn out for, you know, drawn out to bring out the best of the, of the Ducati machinery, it would be Austrian. So I would say, so I would say, yeah, that's definitely the best chance in the second half of the year. Yeah. And if we were looking at, uh, Ducati as a whole, like I know I've sort of 
talked about how you focus on the factory but if you take like we've talked about Laverty and Barber and how impressive they've been but if you look at the Pramac team what have you thought of them through this season Neil and, and just looking at the dynamics within that team as Scott's gotten used to working with with the crew and uh, then obviously Petrucci had a serious injury at the start of the season missed a lot of races yeah I think it's uh, I think they've both been both been quite impressive in their own way um, I think you could say it's been a little bit disappointing that they've had as many mechanical issues as they've had. Um, you know, Petrucci probably could have won that race in Aston had it not been for an electronics issue. Um, Reading probably would have been on for solid top six, top eight finishes in Mugello and Le Mans. Um, Argentini would have been on the podium had it not been for, for a problem there with the bike. Um, so, yeah, so that's been disappointing in a way. But I think both riders have shown that they're capable of fighting with the best satellite bikes out there. Um, you know, Redding, we all know how much of a talent he is. Um, I think his sublime speed in uh, pre-season testing almost put too much expectations onto his own shoulders. And whenever he wasn't challenging for podiums and for top four, top five positions in the first couple of races, while the whole uh, silly season thing played out, you know, in the backdrop of the season and everyone was scrambling for those factory seats, I, know, you know, I think that kind of got to him, you know, and you could see by the time we got to Hareth, you know, he was, he was really down that you know his name wasn't in the it wasn't in the running for um for the for the factory seat alongside Lorenzo, um, but I think since then he's kind of you know pieced himself together, um, worked on his consistency, worked on his throttle control and tire conservation, and I think we've seen a big improvement from him in the last couple of races. Uh, Petrucci as well, I, I think he's been fantastic. You know, coming back from uh, from that injury that you know really was quite nasty. He came back far too soon to Qatar. That was a mistake, obviously. Um, but since he came back in, in Le Mans, he's shown, you know, good consistency. You know, and we all know that he's a fantastic rider in the wet. He could quite easily have had two race wins had things gone his way in Aston and, and Saxon Ring. So I think, yeah, there's been a few a few dark moments in that squad. But, you know, I think there's there's definite promise there for the rest of the year. Yeah, because I know for me, having been at the Hareth test, when uh, Scott was on the bike as well, like he looked so comfortable from that test. Neil, you were there as well with me and Tony, and uh, like we we all commented just on how at ease Scott looked during that test and how easily he seemed to be adapting against the team. And that's where like the the start of the season definitely gave everyone a bit of a surprise. I think everyone sort of thought like when we got to Qatar, he'd be ready to roll and and he would have been able to hit the ground running but uh, definitely there have been those flashes through the season as you said and the last couple of races in the West, he's certainly shown how adaptable he can be I don't think anyone can really doubt Scott's talent I think he's got uh, so much natural speed but it's just a case of getting all those things together and, and grinding out the results and that's where the second half of the season is so important because he really needs to use this now as you know auditions for when Ducati move on from Davi, let's say, or, you know, try to get into a factory seat there. What do you guys make of Danny Pedrosa so far this season? I mean, he sits fourth in the championship, but I don't feel like that is a position that really represents the results that we've seen from him so far this year. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mentioned Pedrosa because aside from Ianone, I would say Pedrosa has probably been the biggest disappointment of the season for me, um, just in the fact that... Um, at, uh, at the Valencia test at the end of 2015, when we were talking about these new Michelin tires, um, Pedroza's style, you know, on paper should be, you know, should be suited to the, to the kind of characteristics of these tires with the, the rear tire having more grip. Also, I mean, you, you just compare his performances to Marquez. You know, it's very rare that he's been anywhere near Marquez in the in any of the races this year. I know he's fourth in the championship, but, you know, that's more down to him just picking up fourth, fifth, the occasional third when someone else has had a problem or crashed out. 
Um, you know, and you compare that to the Danny Pedrosa of the last four races of 2015, where he was spectacular. He was as fast as anyone, uh, arguably in the championship. Um, you felt that, you know, perhaps this could be, um, in some ways a leveler for him to kick on and, to, you know, to, to try and get that, that first world championship. I don't think any of us were really expecting him to be fighting for the world championship, you know, considering all the struggles over the winter. Um, but I think it's a case of, of, you know, Mark being, still being 23, um, having, you know, that ruthless hunger um, to want to, you know, to want to do it all. And, you know, Pedroza with his, you know, his track record of injuries throughout his career, you know, it, it just seems that he's got to a stage where if the bike isn't right, if the bike isn't, you know, working to its full capabilities as he feels it, um, you know, then he's not going to, he's not going to just push to the absolute maximum. Um, and we've heard a few times this year, Pedroza having a bit of a, a bit of a whinge and I think you know he's, he's within his rights you know Honda have obviously uh, you know they've, they definitely haven't um, covered themselves I know it sounds strange with, uh, with Marcus leading the championship but you know I don't think that bike really is up to you know up to the level of the of the Yamahas and the Ducatis maybe even the Suzuki um, to an extent um, but um, but yeah Pedroza I think has been has been quite disappointing we've heard him give out about about the Honda yeah it's uh, it's a strange one yeah, I think for me, it's it's almost like nearly the entire grid, you can look at it and say there's a reason to think of them as being a disappointment this season. As they've struggled to adapt to the Michelins, as teams have struggled to adapt to the new electronics package, I think the only person that's covered themselves in glory is Marquez. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that uh, you judge success or failure on the basis of what was their preseason expectation and I think it's always easy in preseason to think that oh Ducati's going to win races Lorenzo and Rossi are going to win races and be title contenders Honda's struggling a little bit you know Maverick Vinales is the is the coming kid he's going to be a guy that needs to make that step and get in the podium consistently whereas Marquez came in under the radar no one expected him to be really strong this year no one expected him to be consistently grinding out results and avoiding mistakes whereas everyone else seems to just uh, have tripped over themselves a little bit and that's where people like Pedroza I think it, it's you can't argue it Danny has underperformed so far this season but a lot of that comes from the basis that Mark has been so much stronger than people expected as well and I think for Pedroza we definitely did think that these new tires would suit him and I'm sure that they will get that bike to work a bit better for him but uh, for a man of Pedroza's standing to only have two podiums through the first nine races it's uh, it's definitely disappointing and I think as Neil said the last third of last season Pedroza was really strong he'd come back from the surgery come back from his injuries and I think we all expected him to sort of kick that on into 2016 as well if it, you know when we heard it I think it was at Montmelo on the Sunday night um, he came out to the Spanish press and had a right go at Honda for choosing the engine that they did um, over the off season. Uh, he said that Honda basically followed um, Marquez's feedback, didn't follow his, and had they followed his, they would probably have a bike with perhaps a more rideable engine, um, which is more manageable. You know, and it's rare for rare to hear Danny come out and you know kind of say something like that. Um, you know, especially against uh, against Honda that you know usually don't stand for for feedback like that from our open criticism. Um, so I think it just shows that his head maybe isn't quite, you know, you know, he is just a little distracted and a little demotivated by the, um, you know, by, by the, the kind of the standard of the machinery. Um, I kind of heard at Le Mans that, you know, that Pedroza was, 
was waiting, you know, was really hopeful of, of getting uh, a deal to go to Yamaha. Um, but he, he kind of knew that Vinales was the first choice because he was a lot younger. Um, you know, and, and when you hear stuff like that, when you hear that a guy maybe does want out, you know, you do have to question, like, is that 100% hunger and desire uh, that you need to, to win races regularly and regularly stand the podium, is that there? Yeah, and I think... One part of that as well comes down to the fact that you also need to refresh. I think everyone can compare a MotoGP rider's job to their own job. You know, when you're sitting in an office day after day, sometimes just changing that office can have a big impact on your everyday life, your motivation to get up in the morning and go to work. And yeah, like their their office is a very different environment us sitting in, in a chair and uh, sitting at a laptop. But, uh, you know, it is still a workplace for them and you need to know that uh, you know there is not even so much faraway hills or greener it's just new pastures and sometimes the opportunity to move teams can be very refreshing and you know that's where Lorenzo making the move to Ducati sure enough he's going to get paid a lot of money for it but he's doing this to try and change the perception of his career to give him a new challenge and you know to to do something that uh, you know Casey Stoner's the only guy that's won a championship there they haven't won a race in so long he wants to go and try and just motivate himself to do something special and that's where that uh, desire to change teams for a top rider comes from someone like Vinales. The desire to change teams and go to uh, to go to Yamaha for next year comes from the fact that the M1 is a great bike and he wants to win races and win a title. Whereas for Lorenzo or Pedroza, that uh, desire to change can just come from just looking to have something new. Pedroza's been at the same team for ten years. He's been at the same manufacturer for fifteen years. So you know, a change can be quite good for you just to mentally refresh yeah i mean that that echoes of rossi's what if i didn't try it moment right do you do you think though that danny can turn this season around or is this season right off for him yeah i think uh, you can never rule out rule out danny pedroza he's so fast he's so talented and he's won so many races i think uh, you know only a foolish person would say no nah, that's it danny pedroza is not going to do anything in the second half of the year like he's liable to go out and you know win it just let's say Bruno, Mazzano, a couple of places like that. Obviously, he's strong in Aragon as well. He's won a lot of races in Sepang. So Danny Pedrosa could still quite conceivably win four races this year, in my mind. And, uh, you know, then when you look back at the end of the season, has it been a disappointed disappointment? Maybe not. I think that we're looking at it at the opening half of the season and it's still an unfinished picture at the moment. Neil? Yeah, I'll go along with that. Um, I think you look at... Um, you, you speak to the Honda riders um, and they say that although the electronics package that they started the um, that they started the year with um, you know that was that was poor and they've made big strides since then um, I read in an interview with Marquez with uh, with a Spanish journalist uh, Manuel Pacino he was saying that at the start of the year um, the electronics were working at about 30% of the capabilities of last year's package and now you would say it's probably around 85 so there's still quite a lot of, um, you know, quite a lot of room for improvement there. Um, you've got a three-week summer break. You would have to bet that Honda engineers are working through, you know, kind of electronic data, trying to find ways to to improve that and maximize it. So I think, you know, Honda are probably only get, going to get stronger from here. Um, so, yeah, I can see Pedroza, you know, picking it up and doing quite well. But, you know, can you kind of see him? finishing higher than fourth in the championship no i don't think so but yeah there's 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 definitely a chance that he could be um you know finishing on the rostrum more regularly perhaps even challenged for race wins than he has in the first half of the season 
Yeah, and just to move on to a slightly different topic as well, obviously we talk a lot about how the electronics package have changed, how the tires have changed, but when you look at the factory teams, they've got all that uh, engineering brain power and the resources to put behind their efforts. Just when you look at the rest of the grid, I think that's where, for me, I've been able to see just how big of a challenge this year has been. Look at Tectois, Paul Bagro being a lot stronger than Bradley Smith. Um, I think when you look at, uh, you know, We've seen Hector Barber, Eugene Laverty as well, just adapting well to the the change of circumstances. Neil, just being inside the paddock, what have you thought in terms of how those satellite teams, whether it's LCR, Tectois, Avintia, Aspar, how they've dealt with uh, the changes? Mm. Yeah, it's been interesting. Um, we heard uh, Hervé Poncherel in, uh, in Barcelona uh, express some, some concerns about the direction the championship was taking. Um, it was only... You know, two or three years ago, um, when his team with Cal Crutchlow was able to, you know, challenge for podiums, um, challenge for pole positions. This year, um, you know, the way the rider market was going, um, it, it seems that if you're a new talented rider coming up from Moto2, it's a factory bike that is the absolute priority. Um, you know, Hervé's current riders, Paul Spargo, Bradley Smith, they felt that their only chance of, of, you know, regularly challenging for podiums was to go to KTM, a, you know, a brand new factory that's coming into the series. Um, and it's never really been there um, in the past. Um, so, yeah, so it seems that the kind of sort of the emphasis is, is, is shifting away from the satellite teams and what they can do. You know, uh, the Tech 3 team at the moment, they, they have, you know, Yamaha M1, which is a fantastic bike. But we've just seen that because of the you know, the manpower that's available to the factory teams um, and that isn't quite there for the satellite bikes. Um, you know, we have seen a shift in emphasis and it's, it's you know, we haven't really been able to see um, so many of the, of the satellite bikes up at the sharp end. You know, Ducati, I guess you could say, they have done a very wise job in terms of, um, you know, they've got eight bikes in the grid. That's eight different riders giving feedback um, it, different riders being able to try out different uh, electronics tweaks and things like that with the with the software, um, you know they've kind of managed it quite well. Um, but when you look at you know where the, the satellite Hondas have been for most of the season, um, you know Paul Espargaro, you know has done a fantastic job, I think. But you know Bradley Smith really struggled compared to last year. Um, it does seem that the the, the change in the rules um, has definitely favoured the, the the factory the factory bikes. So I want to take your guys' temperature on this because, Neil, I think you bring up some really good points. Do you do you want to see uh, a MotoGP championship that is consisted of more factory riders or, or an environment where satellite riders uh, really are just circulating to fill the grid and only factory teams have a shot at, at a podium? Or, or would you like to see the championship kind of go back to a point in time where satellite riders had a legitimate shot on Sunday? Well, for me, this isn't production racing. This is prototype racing. It's up to teams to be able to get the budget in place, to be able to have the best people working for them. It's up to them to be able to make themselves attractive to manufacturers. And uh, for for me, I think having a, a satellite system where you have to hook everything up to be able to have strong results is about right. You know, I think it's it's difficult for, for riders and teams because you know that you need to be on a stronger package to be able to consistently get to the front. But even when you look back through, you know, decades of Grand Prix racing, the top guys always finished on the podium because they were in the top teams, top bikes with the top engineers. And then you have to try and move your way up through the grid. And um, 
You know, I think we'd all like to see it where maybe it's a bit closer. Maybe it's uh, not a case of having to be absolutely perfect to be able to finish on the podium if you're a satellite rider. But we're also in the middle of an era where we've got, you know, four of the best MotoGP riders of all time on the grid. And those guys don't make many mistakes. And that's what I think the biggest thing is. is if you take Marquez, Lorenzo, Rossi and Pedroza and took, you know, two of those guys off the grid suddenly you'd see an awful lot of more riders on the podium and an awful lot more variety. But those four guys are just so strong and so so talented that it's difficult for other riders to break, break through unless they've got everything absolutely perfect that weekend and those top four guys had trouble. Yeah, I agree with what Steve said. Um, I think if you look back at 2010, I think it was, when you had, um, you had four Yamahas on the grid, um, you had a whole host of Hondas and you had a couple of really uncompetitive Ducatis. I think the state of, um, of MotoGP now is pretty strong. Um, you have, you know, Suzuki looking good. Aprilia putting a lot of effort in there, looking okay. Um, you have KTM coming in and what we saw in the Austria test with Mickey Callio being, I think, two seconds off the fastest lap of the test. I mean, like that's, that's quite impressive. You know, I think they're going to be, they've got two great riders. Well, two very, very strong riders uh, for 2017. I think they're going to be quite a force to be reckoned with. Um, so I think it, it's fantastic to see this extra extra factory input. And MotoGP is in, a, is in a, a strong shape because of this. You know, one of the consequences, one of the negative consequences of this is that, you know, satellite guys, um, you know, maybe aren't going to be able to, to, to finish so high up. Um, I remember speaking to Hervé Poncherol last year um, about, you know, how Bradley and Paul were doing in 2015. And he was saying like, look, um, had there been the same level of factory involvement in 2011, 2012 as there was, you know, last year and this year, you know, maybe Cal Crutzel wouldn't have scored as many podiums and pole positions as he did, you know, because just there is that added depth and quality in the field. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, obviously the satellite thing is a, is a consequence of this, but um, the added... Um, the added technical intrigue of different factories being involved in the series, I think, is a, is a fantastic thing. Yeah, and I think for me, when you look at MotoGP, it should be a series where manufacturers want to be involved. And that's where next year, where we have Honda, Ducati, Yamaha, Aprilia, Suzuki and KTM, that's half your grid being made up of full factory outfits. And that's what you want to see on the grid. And it's interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine that works in Formula One and we were looking back at, uh, you know, whenever we were kids and you were used to seeing lots of privateer teams and then suddenly there was an influx of manufacturers and it's trying to see what the balance should be for a sport, whether or not you want to see as many manufacturers in the championship as possible or whether or not you want to see effectively parity in a championship. And for me, MotoGP is the pinnacle of of bike racing and you need to make sure that uh, you've got the right level of interest from manufacturers because we don't want to have a situation where you end up with just a couple of competitive Hondas, a couple of competitive Yamahas and then everyone else just rocking up on you know old bikes where they don't stand a chance of getting through. I think that the one disadvantage that we have right now is that young riders think that they've got no opportunity to show what they can do unless they're on a factory bike. And that's where people like Alex Rins, you know, effectively demanding to be given a factory seat is uh, is a bit much. You know, I think that we need to see where there is a balance there where, as I said, maybe we get the satellite bikes a little bit closer to the uh, the factory bikes. Not, not in a case where we're making things where there's absolute parity on the grid, but just where it's a little bit easier for those teams to get uh, the most from their package. 
um, would be good just that it would mean that a young rider can look at like you look at Tactois for next year they're going to have Jonas Folger and Johan Zarco they've got two young riders there just like they do with Espagaro and, and Smith right now and you want to make sure that those guys are able to then possibly transition to a factory team in future that's where you know the the movements of the likes of Espagaro and Smith to KTM is really good because it shows that you can go from a satellite operation into a factory team. Crutchlow went from a satellite operation into a factory Ducati, and that's what you want to start to see. Ben Spees did it years ago as well. You know you want to make sure that there is that uh, that natural flow from a satellite team into a factory team. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Stephen. And and if I had to look at my crystal ball for the future of the sport, I definitely think that we're going to see more turnover of riders in the satellite teams and in that not a lower class but it will kind of become that lower class where um we're going to see factories looking to develop young talent looking to see what talent they can take from moto 2 maybe moto 3 maybe world superbike and and bring them into gp and see if they they can adapt to that racing environment those tires electronics etc um because when I look at the grid now and I look at the grid in the past, it seems like we have a lot of riders that are just kind of hanging around, stuck in this kind of satellite, open class purgatory. Yeah, and it's hard to argue with that, JB. You know, it, the problem with uh, racing in general is that you're only as good as your last result is what we've consistently heard. And uh, like people don't really care who finished 14th. They don't look at uh, you know what the lap times were for the guy that finished 14th. They don't listen to what he has to say about why he had a great race. They just look at it like there was 13 people in front of you. You need to look at the bigger picture and that's what the satellite riders need to be looked upon and is where you look deeper, you delve a little bit deeper, you try and find out, you know, how strong they are, whether that's by, you know, talking to their engineers, talking to team bosses, talking to different riders. You need to just understand that right now we've got a Grand Prix grid that is top to bottom made up of world champions, Grand Prix winners, superbike winners, and it's a strong field. And it's just a case of trying to understand just that strength and depth. For sure. For sure. Uh, boys, I think I want to take a break here and um, come back uh, afterwards and, and talk about maybe some of the more uh, poignant moments in the uh, 2016 season so far. So uh, we'll get right back to it in just a moment. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and a and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, and we're back. Guys, tell me what for you has been the the best race so far this season. I think it is in some ways a little bit of a no-brainer. I would have to say Mugello, um, the race with um, the race with with Lorenzo Marquez. Um, you know, I think you could choose any of the races in Mugello that day. Moto two, Moto three were were sensational, um, but the Moto GP race was just incredible for the last lap. Um, both guys coming over the crest, entering turn one on the final time, almost colliding and then just the the sort of the the manic battle that unfolded and you know was only decided you know what a meter two meters before the line um you know you had a lot of drama that day with lorenzo's engine exploding in morning warm-up you had rossi looking like he was he was you know 
a long time since we've seen Rossi look that comfortable at Mugello sitting behind Lorenzo in the first couple of laps, eyeing him up, getting ready to points. And then his engine went and you could just feel the whole place, just, you know, the, the kind of the, the air being sucked out of it. Um, and yeah, there was, it was just a, it was a really dramatic day. And I think, um, you know, we saw Marquez doing, you know, again, doing incredible things with that bike. Maybe that was one of the races this year where he was taking more rest than he should have been doing and uh, considering his championship position. Um, but it also showed Lorenzo that, you know, when he, when he's kind of on form, when he's at his best, you know, he can really fight with the best of them. Um, and I think his, his move at the, uh, at the, the, the chicane, um, the final chicane in that circuit, um, the Biondetti, I think it's called on the final lap was just sensational. And then he had the peace of mind to uh, drag Marquez all the way to the line. I thought it was a it was a great race. Yeah, definitely. I think it's 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 impossible really for me to say that uh, there was any race better than Mugello. It was, and I think as well the important thing was at the time it really looked like Lorenzo was going to kick on. He had just won in Le Mans. He won in Mugello, and I think everyone expected that this was going to be just the you know the same as last year where he won you know th- four in a row at that same point of the season. And I think we all expected him to go to Catalonia, be able to keep building on that, and just keep pushing forward. And instead, since Catalonia. We've seen Lorenzo score only seven points. You know, he had uh, obviously the crash with Ian One in uh, Catalonia. But, uh, you know, when you look at uh, from Mugello to now, just those three races, I think uh, definitely you'd be shocked to think that uh, the Lorenzo we saw then would uh, would have struggled so much. And I think that that's where, you know, I think when we look at defining moments of the season, Mugello is going to be remembered as the best race of the year, but it's also going to be remembered as the start of that decline for Lorenzo where he he dropped out of title contention. Yeah, I go along with that. I would say even you could say, um, I mean, I think he was he was one of the fastest guys on the Friday at uh, Catalonia. Then obviously we uh, we had to change um, the 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 end of the track, the, the design of the track, and that didn't kind of suit him. Um, he wasn't able to deal with um, with a front tire that had no grip um, in the race there, and yeah. You said he scored six points, but he was actually quite fortunate to score those six points because in, in, in Aston, he was absolutely nowhere. He was out of the points. I think he was 18th or 19th, lapping 10 seconds slower than the fastest man in the first race uh, whenever it was stopped. You know, So in the end, he was actually he was actually quite fortunate to, to score that. Um, yeah, it's been quite staggering to, to, to watch Lorenzo sort of just uh, fall apart in some ways. Yeah. Um, when you looked at his speed in Sepang, at the first preseason test, he was head and shoulders above everyone. And he seemed quite surprised. He didn't even seem to be pushing that hard. It was the same in Qatar. Uh, I spoke to someone who works at Mitchell and, and they were convinced that even though Lorenzo was the fastest person there, he still was holding something in reserve and wasn't pushing 100%. So after seeing his performance in Qatar, I thought, well, it's going to be very, very tough to beat him. Um, and yeah, just a couple of changes with the tires. Um, you know, he doesn't have that front grip that, uh, that he relies upon so heavily. Um, I think there's no doubt about what's going on uh, in terms of uh, trying to organize his team for next year. I think the fact that uh, Ramon Forcada isn't going to join him at Ducati, um, as are, you know, Wilco Zielenberg staying at Yamaha. It looks like most of his crew, his current crew, are going to be staying at Yamaha as well. You know, I think that um, Lorenzo just seems to be a little bit at sea. Um, he doesn't have that, uh, you know, that kind of tight-knit team around him upon which he depends upon. 
you know. Yeah, and I think that the one thing that's interesting, and JB, you touched on it earlier on, where you said, like, you know, you wanted to talk about Lorenzo and the move to Ducati, is that the last uh, few races have all been, you know, a bit of a referendum for a lot of fans, where they've sort of looked at it and said, you know, is Lorenzo the right man to take Ducati forward? Is he... You know, is he unraveling? Is he mentally strong enough to be able to deal with adversity? And, uh, you know, for my money, he still is. I still think that, like, when everything's hooked up, Lorenzo's still the best outright rider in the world. But just those last couple of races, circumstances have definitely worked against him. He's clearly not comfortable in the wet right now at uh, especially those two circuits because he's had big crashes there. He broke his collarbone at both of them. And definitely they were the, the two crashes in 2013 that, you know, Wilco Zeelenberg's always said affected him so badly that into 2014 he still hadn't mentally recovered from them and you know, we talked about it earlier on just how important the, the mental side of racing is and uh, I think we're seeing that now with uh, with Lorenzo he just needs to take the summer break get himself back together and just get back to winning races I, I think Lorenzo's meltdown at Aston and and in Germany uh, speak volumes they speak volumes for for the season they speak volumes for for Lorenzo I mean you know, you said it yourself, Stephen. This, this collarbone breaks happened in 2013. I can understand you come back, maybe 2014. FP1 is a little bit of a weird thing because it's it's the first time back. But here we are, 2016, and we're still talking about it. I think that for me speaks volumes about uh, Jorge's mental fortitude, and it kind of reminds me of some of the things you could hear Casey Stoner and his people talking about. You know the ability to get underneath Lorenzo's skin and we saw Rossi do it and you know he he might be one of the fastest guys ever to get on a motorcycle and he you know he takes his physical training so seriously I was just looking on Instagram today and I see him he's in the gym hitting it hard for the summer uh for the summer break making sure he comes back 100% physically fit but I just think there's something something mentally that's missing from from that package and and to go into Ducati next year without kind of his you know unit around him some of the core people that are i would say responsible for keeping that that mental element in 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 check for for jorge uh, i have big concerns you know i make i'm I'll make no qualms saying it i have big concerns that he's not gonna be able to perform in the way that ducati wants him to and quite frankly are paying him to yeah yeah i think you know you steve just mentioned it there that circumstances went against him i think if um you know if Aston was a dry weekend completely lorenzo probably would have finished in the top six there you know he just would chalk it off as one of his bogey circuits and he'd be happy to get out with you know reasonable points germany again you know friday there were freakishly low temperatures he crashed first thing because of that um the front tire wasn't working well and you know he fell that obviously affected his confidence if you had a german grand prix where it was 22 23 degrees on friday saturday and sunday you know i'm pretty sure lorenzo would have been in the top six again so yeah he's been a victim of circumstance to an extent but you know then you know part of being a champion and part of being a world championship challenger is to adapt to these kind of circumstances and you know to to an extent you know marcus has done that fantastically rossi's done it a lot better than lorenzo has um yeah and it's it is it does uh you know, it does raise a few questions about about um, the amount Ducati has paid him to to move there next year. I mean, is there a certain irony that um, 
Lorenzo is probably now one of the worst riders in the ring going on to arguably one of the best bikes for wet weather. <laughs> yeah, I would say he's, I wouldn't say he's one of the worst, but I think, you know, Lorenzo showed in the past that he can be sensational in the ring. You just look at Mategi last year and he, you know, came very, very close to winning that race, but for an overheating front tire, um, you know, there were other instances in the past where he's been, he's just been awesome. Um, I think, you know, a part of this is that the rain tires that they were using in Aston were basically Michelin's first evolution of rain tires that they had ever made. And they've been pretty much unchanged from the first test in which they used them at Phillip Island. So they were far too hard and weren't offering any front end filling. So Lorenzo was just lost. Um, you know, you have to imagine by the time he goes to Ducati, Michelin will have sorted out the front wet tire. Um, to, you know, to a certain extent. And I think, you know, maybe his difficulties won't be as pronounced. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering as well that Lorenzo's biggest issue is really when it's changeable conditions. When conditions are consistent, he's still really strong in the wet. But it's just whenever you've got like Saxon ring where you're trying to change onto a slick tire or change to an intermediate tire, that's where, you know, things get quite difficult for him. And it's always been the case with Lorenzo as well. It hasn't just been, you know, as a result of those crashes in 2013. It's it's always been something that he struggled with whenever you have that uh, transition mid-race. Uh, I know before the break we were talking about the, uh, the satellite riders. Obviously, one of the biggest moments this season so far for, for satellite riders was, was Aston and, and Jack Miller's win. Uh, how, do you, how do you rate that race and how do you rate um, that opportunity for, for Miller? Well, Miller was given the opportunity and he took it with both hands and that's what you've got to do. I think, you know, circumstances played to his hands. He was willing to risk more, obviously, than the likes of Marquez, who's got a championship to think of. But, you know, Jack showed last year at Silverstone, even if it was just for a lap and a half, how good he is in wet conditions, how good, how brave he is and how willing to push to uh, to the limit he is. Obviously, that day he took out his teammate, but in Assen and in Saxon Ring, he was sure-footed, he made no real mistakes and he was able to take the wins. And I think that, uh, you know, it was great to see because, you know, I think uh, Jack's an interesting character. Jack's a guy that I think um, when we saw him in Moto3, and we we saw him make that step up towards MotoGP. It definitely looked like he maybe not underestimated it, but didn't quite give it the same focus that he needed to. But whereas, you know, halfway through last year, I remember at Indianapolis was the first time I looked at Jack and thought like, wow, he actually looks like a MotoGP rider now. He looked fit. He looked strong. He looked, you know, much more at ease with himself than he did at the start of preseason testing. And, uh, you know, from that point onwards, Jack's been really strong. And you look at him this year, you know, he's had bad injuries, but because he's been able to train through it and work hard over the winter with his fitness, he's been able to overcome them. And I think, uh, you know, Aston was was a good reward for that as well for Jack. Do you think he's living up to the hype, Stephen? It depends on what hype you're talking about, JB. I think that uh, Jack is doing exactly what a guy that's made that jump from Moto3 should be doing. You know, maybe not the race wins. That's, that's you know, don't anyone expects that. But last year was a tough season. It had to be chalked up as a learning year. And, you know, whether or not, you know, HRC think that it was a wise decision now with hindsight is, you know, irrelevant. The decision's been made. Jack's been able to come up and show that he's quick enough to be on the Grand Prix grid. And this year that he's not, you know, dangerous or loose out on the track. I think last year... There was definitely a, a claim you could make that, uh, you know, Jack 
wasn't safe on track at certain points. A lot of riders made complaints about him at the start of races, in particular Aston last year, where you know he took out Hector Barbara into the into the GT chicane on the first lap. But you know the second half of last year onwards, Jack definitely made a big step forward, and he's gotten himself much more comfortable on the bike, much more confident. And as I said, he looks like a, a real MotoGP rider now. You know, Jack really looks like you know we talked about maturity before. You know, he definitely looks like a rider that has taken that next step in his maturity level. I wouldn't say he's at that point now where he deserves a factory ride and he's proven himself. But um, when you look at uh, the investment that Honda has made in him, it seems like they are finally now starting to see some returns on that. And with, I think, a lot of help from Alberto Pooch, um, say what you will about the guy, but I think he really screwed Jack's head on right for what needs to be done for him to continue his career in a in a forward trajectory. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, you look at um, his reaction after the race in Saxon Ring. Um, you know, you imagine if it was a uh, uh, Jack Miller from Moto Three, a young spunky teenager. Um, there probably would have been a lot of anger at, at losing that race. Um, he was leading with, I don't know, six, seven laps to go. Um, you know, he ignored his, his team signals to pit, uh, to come in and change the slicks. Um, you know, he felt that he had a sufficient lead while everyone else had pitted uh, in front of him. You know, he thought like he had a sufficient lead to hold it to the flag. Um, you know, he then pitted, came back out, I think finished seventh. You know, rather than being really pissed off that he had lost that, um, you know, he was looking at the kind of bigger picture that this was a continuation of that run since Barcelona where he scored his first top 10 finish. You know, he won an ass and he scored another strong top 10 and in Germany. And, you know, I think what really stood out there was, you know, what Steve said earlier, you know, in his first year, yeah, he was loose. Even, uh, you know, even at the start of this year in, in Argentina, um, he crashed out, I think, on lap three while he was, you know, trying to follow the leaders. And, you know, Scott Redden told me that he was just... You know, to watch him, you just thought it was a crash waiting to happen. You know, Scott was saying he was out of control. So, to, you know, compare that to how he was up with the leaders in Germany, how he was just watching them, following them, waiting his time. You know, you definitely saw a change in, in his approach there. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, Jack has got to the stage where he's built a very strong platform for the second half of the year. He also said in, in, in Germany that his, um, his leg's probably about 85% his right leg that he broke at the start of the year, then re-injured in, in Texas, you know, it's still only at 85%, you know, fitness. So, you know, a couple of more weeks um, of healing over the summer and you have to imagine that he'll come back for the second half of the year. I'm really excited to see what Jack can do um, going into the second half. What I found interesting about Jack this year was he he joined us in the commentary box at Imola for the Supersport race and it was the first time that uh, Greg Haynes, my co-commentator, had talked to Jack really since... Uh, they were, they were both in uh, MotoGP in 2014 and, uh, you know, he hadn't seen him, you know, in a long time and uh, he was really surprised at just the difference in Jack's just outright maturity just in terms of how he is as a man now compared to a couple of years ago and I think that's really shone through on track as well for Jack. He's definitely been able to to make a big step forward in, in that regard. Let's switch gears for a minute and talk about, I want to go back to the Magella race and talk about what we saw with Yamaha and its engines, obviously uh, seeing two motors pop on the same day from, from Yamaha is uh, quite the abnormality. And, and, you know, now I think we have a, a better insight into why that happened. But I think the, the, the fact that it did is, is still worth mentioning. 
yeah, yeah, that was that was definitely um, something that was very interesting. Um, they released a statement, I think, in the following race, um, that basically when you when you crest over the, uh, the little hill, the brow, um, before turn one, before you start breaking at turn one, there, yeah, I think you could see perfectly actually with uh, with one of Tony Goldsmith's photographs that he took uh, from that day, where basically you have Lorenzo um, coming over that hill, and both wheels are just just off the ground, and if you're on full throttle. At that, um, you know, at that speed, obviously with the, the back wheel going off the ground, you're going to just start to rev it a little bit higher and the revs are going to go higher. Um, with Yamaha's old electronics, I think this is the, the software um, and the system was able to kind of cut that out, you know. Um, but with these new electronics, they hadn't quite factored that in, that there was going to be this little extra added bit of, uh, of RPM there at that point in the straight. And yeah, that basically that caused you know put extra stress on the engine and they hadn't quite counted that in you know to 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 use the electronic system um in the way that it should have been done um so they kind of held up their hands and said that that was that was the the reason of for that neil do you think that's going to play a factor as the championship uh dwindles down the those engines being out, out of the allocation i don't think so no i don't think so um you know i think we've seen um in the past that you know, if they have to play it safe, that they're able to. Um, I can't imagine it's going to be a big issue for, for you know, a, a factory as big, as experienced and as well manned uh, as Yamaha. Um, you know, I think that that race, you know, we talk about turning points in the championship. I think that race really is a massive turning point in the championship for, for Valentino Rossi. Um, whether it's going to have any effects on, on Yamaha in terms of, you know, losing an engine apiece for both riders at that stage in later in the year, I, I don't think it will. Um, Steve, what do you think? Uh, no, I don't think engine life's going to be a, a major issue at all for Yamaha. We see it time and time again where teams crack open their last engine at the end of the season just because they have it still available as opposed to needing to use it. But Neil, just to go back to that Mugello race for Rossi, obviously he's had three retirements this season, two crashes and uh, that engine problem. But um, do you still view him as being in title contention at all? <laughs> I mean, you know... Yeah, it's 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 mathematically possible, but no, I can't see it. Um, to be what fifty nine points behind is it? Fifty nine points behind? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's far too much. I think. Um, you know, we were talking about Mugello there. You know, had Rossi won that race, he and then you know, let's let's kind of think theoretically here. Um, you know, which is useless, I know, but had he won that race and then gone to Catalonia and won, he would have arrived at Aston in the championship lead. And if he had arrived last in the championship lead in that second part of the race, would he have been, you know, pushing on as hard as he had, you know, to try and put, you know, two, three seconds into, you know, Marquez that was behind him? Probably not. Um, and you can see that just, you know, the consequences of, of, you know, having these two DNFs early in the season, you're starting to have to take risks that maybe, you know, you know, switch it back, look at Marquez. He was in that situation where he thought, no, I, I don't want to risk it here. It's not worth it. Um, Rossi was in the situation where he had to risk him. And, you know, perhaps that crash in Aston wouldn't have happened had the uh, had the engine failure uh, not occurred in Mugello. But, you know, these are all ifs and buts, um, which are which are kind of futile um, in this sport. But, uh, but yeah, I think really had Rossi's engine not expired in Mugello, we'd be looking at a very, very different championship right now. Yeah, if buts and maybes, and uh, obviously after uh, what happened in the last couple of rounds, Rossi has said that he'd like to have uh, the use of radios as well. And uh, I know David Emmett isn't with us today, and this is one of his big soapbox moments, but um, what do you think about radios, guys? I personally think that there's no reason to have them in GP. 
they're just uh, you know unnecessary that we've we've got the human element of a writer i can understand why you know someone like rossi who's clearly had issues in the last couple of years with that transition for when to move on to a different bike in a flag to flag race but uh you know it just seems that it's it's one of those things that uh, you know rossi talks about wanting just because it would help him rather than help the sport yeah i think i i disagree with you just on the lines of i think it adds another dimension to the the viewer spectacle um i always actually enjoy listening to the the radio comms on an f1 and hearing the the back and forth between the driver and the team and i think that could be an interesting element to add to to moto gp's uh live feed well um, the one thing about that is that uh for want of a better phrase an f1 car is so much more technically advanced in terms of what a, a driver is able to do on the on track compared to a, a gp bike neil you did a, a piece in mcn sport about the uh controls that a rider has uh, to be able to change electronic strategies and things like that if you want to just talk through you know exactly what a, a driver or what a rider can do but when you compare that um handlebar mounted system to what we see on a steering wheel in a formula one car it shows just how much more an f1 driver is able to change compared to a moto gp rider yeah i mean um yeah just for the for the record you know i think um i really would be against um having radios in in, in bike racing because as you said steve there is that human element there um you know riders are basically they have well with i did a feature with uh, Bradley Smith and he was talking me through the features that are available uh, to, to Tectois and to EMIS um, and that they have basically three acceleration maps and three deceleration maps that they can play with and it's basically up to the rider you know how he how he's feeling how the condition of the track is you know he has to judge when to change those maps and obviously those maps have different traction control settings different braking settings engine braking settings and things like this which are which are designed you know to cope with um you know tires being in a different state the track being hotter grippier less grippier things like that and that you know that requires a rider to really use his mind to the absolute fullest while he's obviously focusing on trying to you know hit his braking markers and hit the apexes and all the rest of it um i think that's another element of of you know of, of, of racing that, that I enjoy, um, you know, watching the riders have to think about it. And, you know, it's no surprise that, you know, the, the top riders in the world are obviously the smartest riders in the world. Um, you know, I don't like Formula One at all because of, you know, you, you just get the impression that there are these engineers that are obviously incredibly smart and know, you know, incredible amounts about, you know, the technology that goes into these cars. But when you have guys that have no racing experience in their life, telling you know the best drivers in the world what they should be doing what settings they should be doing whether they should be pushing or not no i don't think that's um you know I, I, that doesn't appeal to me at all yeah and i think like when if you were to look back at some of the message that, that you see during a race fair enough like now they have changed the regulations and they're trying to make sure that an engineer can't uh, really give direct input to try and uh, you know change what's happening with an engine let's say or something like that but when you sit there and, and you're watching a qualifying session and uh, you get an engineer come onto the radio and say yeah you're doing quite well in sector one but in sector three to through turn three you're half a tenth slower than your teammate and through the next corner you know you're losing a, a little bit more and, and and they're telling them you know how to drive individual corners like that's obviously been banned from from formula one now but that's what they were using it for years and I don't think that, uh, you know, a Mark Marquez, a, a Valentino Rossi 
should be being told that, uh, you know, Jorge Lorenzo is X amount faster than you through, you know, turn six at Silverstone. You've got to find that time yourself. You've got to understand the best way for you to get your lap time. And that's where I think, you know, that personal element of uh, bike racing is so important where once the rider goes out and he shuts down his visor, it's just him and the track. And I wouldn't like to see that change. And as well as that, um, you know, I've talked to Jeremy McWilliams about it. He obviously tested a system in the past with uh, when he was with the team Roberts. And, uh, you know, he said that it was almost impossible to hear what was actually going on because in a in a car, you're cocooned. So the wind moves around you slightly differently, whereas on a bike, you know, you can be a lot more exposed and the wind noise just is uh, is quite different as well. So it's, it's you know, technologically, it's an interesting challenge. And I think that maybe in some elements of bike racing, you, you could uh, have it, but I'd prefer if we didn't. Yeah, I also think there's there's uh, methods available to let riders know. Um, I mean, you know, riders have, you know, the pit boards. I think that's, uh, you know, that's leeway enough, um, you know, to, to signal to them when they need to pit, when they need to change the tires. You know, they can come up with their own signals on that. And that's done the sort of teamwork. Um, I think, yeah, I think, you know, radio control is just a, an easy way out in some respects. You know, it's you know, it's interesting to see how riders communicate with other teams, communicate with the riders during such situations that we had at the, at the Saxon ring. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, I think I think it would be I think it would be a bad idea. What's interesting is that the teams obviously have so much more data than a rider at any given time because they've got, you know, lap times from everyone, sector times from everyone. You're able to, and like people watching at home, when they watch with live timing, they're able to see that definitive moment where the track has changed, where suddenly a slick tire is faster than a wet tire and that's the time to change over. The pit board goes out to say box now and uh, you're waiting for the rider to come back in and actually accept that the team knows more like we had a situation at uh, Aston this year in World Superbikes where it was a wet race you had to come in to change to slicks or intermediate tires and um, you know I was talking to a lot of the riders about it and they did say you just put your complete faith in the team that they're going to know best and I think Josh Brooks said it best where he said that you know, it's so easy to sit at home, watch it on TV and say, God, that guy's that guy's an idiot. Like, why isn't he pitting? It's it's clear you can pit now. But the rider, the rider doesn't know how dry the track is. You know, until a rider really has a big moment, um, they don't know what the track conditions are like. They just keep pushing on to what they think is the limit. And JB, like you, you would have experienced that plenty of times whenever you were riding on tracks as well, where you just ride what you to what you think is the limit. And it's only whenever you lose it that you realize, okay, I overstepped it. And obviously in a flag to flag situation, a, a rider always has to try and be just that little bit under the limit and then trust that they're given the right time to, to pit. No, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that idea. But for me, I always am sitting here thinking about the spectacle for the fans and making sure that the fan experience is as good as it can be because... I mean, quite honestly, from where I sit as a journalist, my my concerns are less about motorcycle racing and more concerned about the motorcycle industry. So how do we engage more people in motorcycles? How do we engage more people in motorcycle racing? How do we create uh, a paddock that is profitable and entertaining and, you know, all those other great buzzwords that we that we strive for, um, you know? you probably wouldn't want me running a, a, the MotoGP championship because I'd probably make everyone pit every three laps just because I think pit stops are, are awesome and they, they they jumble up the standings and I like seeing uh, 
uh, quick swap tires and things like that. So, so I do understand that I'm, I am several standard deviations outside the norm on this, but maybe we can find some common ground in just the fact that MotoGP is, uh, I think Steven, you even said this earlier in the show that this is prototype racing. This is the pinnacle of the sport. This is where we're supposed to see development. And, you know, there's a little bit of me that, that feels like you guys are blowing against the wind because, you know, we'll be 30, 40 years from now and we'll still be using smoke signals to talk from the, the team to the rider as they go by uh, the start finish line. But I do think there is an element that fans will want to be clued into because I would personally love to see whether or not Bradley Smith is using, you know, engine braking map two or engine braking map three and when he switches over and whether, you know, his traction control is is working at optimum efficiency. Like there's there's a a nerdiness that comes with with MotoGP racing, I think that that we don't tap into very well, or Dorna doesn't tap into very well uh, when it comes to just showcasing the race on our TVs or our computer screens or however you're consuming uh, these races. Yeah, and what's interesting is when you talk to writers, and I remember after Mizano last year, I was talking to Brad, and uh, you know the key thing for him was when was the right time to pit in that race. He finished on the podium, could have possibly won the race. And the right time for him to change was when his delta time was underneath a certain time. So once he looked at his lap, uh, at his uh, at his uh, dashboard and he saw that he was underneath a certain time, he knew that it was time to transition onto, onto a dry tire. And he understood that he needed to make that change then. Fair enough, at, the, at that moment in time when you're watching it on TV, you don't know that the rider has that information, but you know it's very exciting to to watch the race and then see a rider pit and then see you know has he actually made up enough time? Is has he has he chosen the right time to to change bikes? Now personally, for me, maybe a good middle ground would be if we went to endurance style races where you change tires instead of changing bikes, and you then had it where the penalty, not so much the penalty, but the cost of pitting was much greater than just coming in, jumping onto another bike and riding out, where the only limit really is the pit lane speed limit. You know, so you can make a pit stop and it costs you, let's say, 18 seconds. Whereas if you were making a tire change, it could cost you, you know, let's say, 45 seconds. You know, we see tire changes in, we saw it at the Suzuka eight hours at the weekend, we see it at the Isle of Man TT, and you can make a tire change quite quickly. And I think that would be a way where, you know, if a rider... Like, let's say at Saxon Ring, if you had to change tires and you had Mark Marquez switching early, going on to slicks, coming back out, setting all those fast lap times, but you got Jack Miller out at the front on a wet tire, being caught hand over fist. But, you know, should Jack stay out? Should Jack pit? You know, if he stays out, there's a chance that he might be able to hold off Marquez because, you know, Mark's given up so much time to make his pit stop. You know, if he if he pits, he's obviously going to fall all the way down the order. And, and, and that could give you a little bit more of that uh, spectacle that you're looking for JB rather than just uh, having uh, having the pit radios because you know pit radios you know we we see and we hear some of the messages but we don't hear the fact that for every lap of every race an engineer and a driver are talking to each other that's fair that's fair and and you know my, I obviously don't watch as much formula 1 as you two do but I don't um, I don't let's just make it clear that I don't watch it at all <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's uh, that's almost like a yeah I don't know I feel like it's a moral right as a motorcycle fan. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. 
Yeah, even saying that, Neil, I think you may have you may have seen more Formula One than I have. Um, so that means you've seen literally no Formula One ever. <laughs> there, there is some, there is something there. Like there is another level of of that sport, and and I just look at I just look at how technology is progressing, and and you know, unfortunately, Tony's not here to to defend the the good old Isleman TT. But I look at those those Boy Scouts running the the sector times down, and and the guy painting on the chalkboard the the different lap times, and you just sit there and you're just like, how much longer are you guys going to keep doing that? Like, it, it's kind of gotten to that point now where it's kind of old timey and folksy and fun, and you know, the proper timing system is is now digital and automated. But you know, how much longer are we really going to communicate between team and rider via you know? cardboard numbers is that going to go on for another decade another two decades three decades is that is that going to be something 100 years from now that we're still going to be doing and laughing about like i just technology has to give way at some point yeah and just to defend the uh, the boy scouts and the tt um i think uh, you know there there have been lots of times whenever the organizers have asked you know should we change this and the fans have said no nah, like no one's going to use that, uh, you know, the Boy Scouts uh, lap board as the the reference, but it's nice to have it just as far as tradition is concerned. As you said, JB, you know, we have the automated system as well. We have, you know, the full live timing now as well. So it's just something there that's, uh, that's there because it's always been there as opposed to it's there and it's being relied upon as being the only way to communicate that info. Yeah, I think you're actually making the argument for me there, uh, Stephen. You, you you haven't converted me, JB. We're talking about radios, not about Boy Scouts putting up lap times. <laughs> <laughs> why don't we uh, Why don't we take a break and I'll have a think on it, and maybe we get back to it when we come back. Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddock pass podcast. All right, now back to the show. We've been talking about the last uh, nine races so far this season. I want to take a brief moment and talk about the next nine races. Who do you see the, the second half of the season favoring in terms of riders and teams and manufacturers? Ah, it's difficult to say, really. I, you know, to be honest, the you know I, I kind of see it favoring um, the the factory Honda guys because they still have they still appear to have such a, a margin to you know room of margin to work within and uh, to improve. Um, we saw last year. Uh, I remember Cal Crutchlow saying around this point um, after he came back from the summer breaks that you always see the factory bikes getting further away um, from the satellites in the second half of the year just because they have the manpower, they have the the resources to, to kind of throw at their bikes. Whereas the satellite guys, you know, maybe they're given a package that starts the year and it'll more than likely be similar or the same at the end. Um, so, yeah, so, I, you know, I... I we already spoke earlier. I can see Pedroza, you know, picking up a little bit of extra pace in the second half of the year. Um, you know, I, I think Marcus is going to be very hard to beat. Um, you know, I don't really see a great, you know, you probably see the Ducatis climbing the order in the championship. Um, you know, I don't think that comes as any great surprise. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't foresee anything that crazy um, happening. 
Yeah, I'm the same, Neil. I think that when you look at uh, last year, I think is going to be the blueprint. That's where we started to see the second half of the year again. Just riders making that that step forward. Marquez is always strong in the second half of the year. Obviously, he's lost Indianapolis, a track he's won at often in the past. But um, you know, you look at um, you look at the way the calendar is going to be split out, and it's probably going to be you know Yamaha is going to be favoured at three tracks, Honda is going to be favoured at three tracks, Ducati is going to be favoured at, at Austria. And then a couple of tracks are going to just uh, suit each bike and it's just up to whoever does the best job in the weekend. So I think that really in terms of you know what we can expect from the next nine races, just more of the same of what we've seen so far this year. I think, uh, you know, Mark with a, a 48 point championship lead, it's going to take a lot for him to lose this championship because that's the point we're at now. I think it's not where someone's going to win it, it's where someone's going to lose it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to look past him. But, you know, maybe we see... You know, a strong performance by Ducati in Austria. Maybe they win that race, and maybe then they can they can kick on from that. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that um, you know we, we've touched on Lorenzo's terrible spell um, in Barcelona, Essen, and Germany. Um, but historically, Lorenzo's always come very, very well in the second half of the year. Even in 2014, when he had that nightmare first half of the year, I think he was pretty much on the podium more or less every race, perhaps bar Valencia in 2014. Um, you know, in the second half of the year, he was able to put really consistent second half of the season together. I think um, having the summer break, you know, it couldn't come soon enough for him. And <clears throat> he'll have a chance to clear his head, you know, go away, try and put the last couple of races out of his mind and come back strong. You know, we saw how brilliant he was in the second half of the last year. You know, I can't quite envision him you know pegging back 48 points to Marquez but I still foresee a much stronger Lorenzo a kind of Lorenzo that we saw at the start of this year um, you know in the second half yeah and what's an interesting stat is and Neil you touched on it there is that over the last you know three years Lorenzo's only finished off the podium three times in the second half of the season for those three years combined and that just shows the consistency that he has and also how much these tracks do suit him as well so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, as we said about Pedroza as well, it's a case of you can't underestimate these guys that, you know, they're at the front for a reason. They're the best riders in the world for a reason. And they're the guys that we consistently talk about. It's because they grind out results all the time. And it's just going to be a case of, you know, this year is different. The Michelins have definitely shaken things up. But now that we're into that second half of the season, that's where you really expect to see, you know, as you were saying about Crutchlow's comments, that's where you expect to see the factory guys really just uh, step it on. Do you guys think at the end of this season that we'll look back and call Maverick Vinales a proper fifth alien? Or has that hype waned? I think in terms of results, yeah, there's definitely, you could definitely say that, um, you could definitely say that, you know, the wind has kind of, you know, been taken out of his sails to an extent. Um, he, the first four, five, six races, you know, in each of those races, we were, you know, there was a different point where you said like, wow, Vinales is really doing something special here. Um, Italy, he came so close to, you know, to take a pole position. Then he had an electrical issue off the line and that really ruined the start of his race. Um, he had bad bad results in Holland, bad results in Germany, but that was because at the moment the Suzuki, they just have, you know, very little experience in wet weather with that bike. And, you know, they're, they're just, it, it doesn't seem to be able to work really in, in wet conditions. Yeah, to an extent, you know, the momentum has gone away from Vinales after, you know, his podium in in, um, in France. But I still think in, in, in Holland, 
Um, you know, in free practice, he was really strong. Um, Marcus said that if it was dry, his two his two challenges for the win were Vinales and Rossi. So, you know, Vinales arguably could have been on the podium there had conditions been different. And in Germany, you know, there was still... Um, there were still moments in that weekend where he was sensational. I mean, he was the fastest guy on Friday in cold conditions. I think he fell at turn 11 uh, in FP2. You know, five minutes later, was back on the second bike, putting in faster lap times than he was before. You know, and you, you know, just see him, seeing him a manhandle, you know, a second bike through turn 11 where he just crashed was mildly impressive. So even, you know, even in the weekend where, you know, the results haven't quite been that great, I think Vinales has still shown that, yeah, we're, we're looking at a serious talent for the future. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he kicks on now. Yeah, I think that talk of a fifth alien, though, I think it's I think it's a bit much. Not so much in terms of anything against Vinales. I just think that if you're talking about, you know, a quarter of the grid being these otherworldly riders that, uh, no, nah, it's just a case of right now we've just got a, a crop of incredibly talented riders. And I think that the, the, the aliens... I don't like to use that phrase anymore. I think whenever it was initially coined, it was very apt. But now I think we've seen, you know, Marquez come in and join what was the original Aliens. And now if you're adding Vinales, if you're going to add a couple of other riders over the next few years, I think it's just a case of we've just got an exceptional crop of talented riders right now. Vinales, you know, it's a strange situation because kind of like Ian One last year, until they consistently get onto the podium and things like that, um, it's hard to really know where they stand. And I think that's where Vinales going to Yamaha is great because suddenly the pressure's on. He's got to be able to perform. He's got to live up to all of this expectations. And, you know, what was one of the interesting races for me was Catalonia because that was a race where Vinales had so much pace but just looked like he stressed himself way too much. He was trying to just make something happen on every lap. And I think it's just to bring that back a notch, calm himself down and, uh, you know, like Marquez, look at the bigger picture and try and just get as many points as possible. That's what he needs to do. And, you know, I think that uh, he's been exceptional for the first year and a half of his MotoGP career. I think it's very easy to, you know, look at every rookie post Marquez and think that they should be finishing on the podium, winning races, but it doesn't work like that. And, uh, you know, I think Vinales has been, you know, really strong and he'll go to Yamaha next year. And uh, that's where we get to see exactly how good he can be. Yeah, and I think, you know, you just, you speak to people that have been in the paddock for a long time, really experienced journalists, whether they're Spanish or English or, or Italian, you know, Vinales is rated extremely highly, you know, and there seems to be a, you know, a general opinion that he can go to Yamaha and be a podium contender, perhaps even a race winner contender um, straight away. So, you know, I think when you hear, you know, big names or people that really know what they're talking about in, in racing circles, you know, they, they certainly rate him that highly. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to see what he can do in the second half of 2016. What's interesting about Vinales for me is that, um, you know, when you look at uh, his career arc as a whole, he's definitely been able to just consistently turn up in any class and be able to be a contender right from the start. You know, he won in one two fives after only four races. He won his first Moto three race. He won his second Moto two race. He's been one of those guys. And then obviously in GP last year, he came in and was really strong as well right from the outset. And he's one of those guys that uh, has definitely always been able to make that jump and uh, impress. Whereas you know, there aren't too many guys that come through the ranks like that and are able to consistently 
impress in each class. I think if you were to compare them, the, the easiest comparison is Alex Rins because they both raced each other in Moto3. Rins replaced Vinales at uh, the Pons team in Moto2. He's going to replace him at Suzuki as well in GP. And, uh, you know, Rins is a rider that I think everyone has rated for a very long time. He's really talented, very quick. But um, what's been interesting, and Neil, we were talking about this off air, but uh, you know, Cito Pons was commenting about the difference between the two riders. And, uh, you know, he was saying that uh, as far as Rins and Vinales, the biggest difference is that, uh, you know, probably just application and just uh, the way that Vinales goes about his work and the way that he's able just to maximize every moment to get the most from it. Hmm. Yeah, Pons was saying that in terms of ability, natural talent, they're very similar. Um, but in terms of application, um, he was saying that Maverick shows up to a race weekend and knows exactly what he has to do, um, knows the challenge that lies ahead and knows exactly who he needs to beat. He said uh, for Rins, that's still something he has to learn, you know, and I guess, um, you know, Maverick obviously has that world championship to, to show for that. And Rins um, has it all to do in Moto2 this year to, to show that he, he can be a world champion. Um, so, yeah, so it's interesting, definitely, uh, that, that Cito said that. You know, those are the expectations for, for Maverick, but what about the expectations for Suzuki as a manufacturer? What do you, what do you, do you think that they can take this next step that they need to make uh, in the latter half of the season, or is that something that's going to take for them to get to the off season before we before we see that? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's difficult to say. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess you know what. What do you mean by like the next step? I guess would be you know coming into this year, they were saying the next step was to be consistently finishing top six, potentially even on the podium. I think if certain things had gone their way and if, you know, we had a Maverick Vinales that was just a little more adept at, at, at being very strong at the start of the races, I think, you know, we could have maybe seen podiums in Mugello. We could have maybe seen, well, I mentioned Aston, you know, if things had went his way. Um, yeah, I, I can see Vinales, you know, challenge for, for the podium in a couple of races, maybe even a race win in Phillip Island, you know, knowing how, how good he, how, how well he, he goes there. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, um, what is the next step with, with Inoni and, and with Rins next year? Do we really foresee them challenging for the podium a lot? I don't. Um, it's difficult to see, you know, whether, you know, Suzuki have made obviously huge strides this year. They have to be commended for that. Um, but it's difficult to see whether they can then, you know, jump another level to, you know, to be consistently fighting with Honda and Yamaha for race wins, you know. It, se it seems to me, especially with, Maverick leaving the team and Aleish, you know, kind of struggling now that those departures really seems to set that or seems to set Suzuki back maybe another year in its in its timeline where now they kind of have the same problem with Ducati where, you know, even if they come in with a 2017 season with a bike that, you know, could be a race winning bike. Now they don't have the riders that are necessarily going to be able to, to give them those results. Yeah, and I think, you know, not to go against what I was saying earlier on in terms of like, is there a fifth alien, but riders like Vinales only come up every so often. You know, there's not uh, there's not a crop of uh, Vinales or Marquez's or Lorenzo's or Pedroza's or Rossi's that uh, come through the ranks. They're, you know, right now we've got a concentration of them. But, you know, when you look through Moto3, when you look at Moto2, is there, you know, another guy like that coming through? And, you know, I don't really think that, that there is immediately someone like that. And that's where if you have one of those riders, you pay whatever it takes to make them stay there. And Suzuki definitely did offer a very competitive package 
to uh, Vinales in terms of you know his his salary for next year, bonuses and things like that. But he wanted to win, and the easiest way to win is to get on a better bike. And uh, you know Suzuki did all they could to try and keep him, but uh, you know it it they definitely take a step back whenever they go from you know having someone as promising as Vinales with that much potential. Um, but in saying that. You know, Ian One last year, uh, you know, I keep harking back to last year with Ian One, but he was really strong. And I think everyone thought going into this year that he had the potential to be able to challenge at the front as well. So, you know, maybe getting fired by Ducati will give him the kick that he needs to really get the most from his talent. Because he's another guy that, uh, you know, came in, won one, two, five races, dominated Moto2 races. And, uh, for the first three years in MotoGP, you know, made a, a step-by-step progress each year. And this year, he's obviously made a, a big step back. Uh, I don't know how we've managed to get this far th- into the show and not give um, more time to, to one of the biggest changes for the 2016 season. But, you know, what do you make of the Michelin tires and, and how do you see that partnership with MotoGP going forward in the next nine races, uh, Neil? Um, you know, I think you look at the first nine races and you'd have to say that overall Michelin have done a pretty good job. Um, it hasn't been plain sailing. It never was going to be plain sailing, but I guess you have to judge, um, you know, their, their, their progress and their application by how they've reacted to certain situations. And you've had to say that they've reacted to any sort of issue, um, by throwing a lot of resources at it, you know, and a lot of manpower. Um, so, you know, we had that sensational start in Qatar where there were four seconds under the, the race record from the year before. Everything was rosy, universal praise. Um, then we got to, to Argentina where, you know, the track was in an awful state. There were high temperatures and, you know, uh, one manufacturer of bike was putting a little more stress on the rear tire than usual. It was kind of a freak circumstance, um, but you know you couldn't fault them for you know, for how they reacted to that. They shipped out a whole new batch of rear rubber uh, to Texas, and yeah, there's been there's been ups and downs. You know, you know that they, they almost made that rear tire too safe after what happened to Scott Redding in in Argentina, um, and that had repercussions in in Jerez and in Le Mans. Um, but you know, on the whole, I think um, I think it's been largely positive there's been a few tracks where it hasn't been you know the the tires they brought haven't quite been correct you're looking at barcelona there where guys were really having issues uh, towards the end of the race with both the front and the rear tire you know the wet tires that they brought to, to Assen, you know weren't you know they weren't fantastic that front tire they said they could have done 100 200 laps on it um, but you know, with experience, you know, I think um, you know for the first year they're doing they're doing a decent job. It was never going to be plain sailing, as I said before. Um, and you know, on the strength of their reactions, I think I think it's been quite impressive. Yeah, and I remember at, uh, going back to the Valencia test. Obviously, that was the first moment where everyone got their definitive pack. Well, virtually everyone got their definitive packages for this year, and uh, you, you saw a lot of riders crashing. You saw a lot of incidents. And uh, I remember I did a, a piece with Michael Laverty, who, you know, extensively tested the uh, Michelin through the year for Aprilia. And uh, Laverty said that, uh, you know, these tires aren't a bad tire. They're just a different tire. And we're looking at the best riders in the world and it's just going to take time for them to adapt. And I think, you know, that's what we've seen. It has taken them time just to get the most from them, learn what you need to do with the Michelins. 
But, you know, really, from this point on, I don't think we're going to see any major complaints about Michelin. We're not going to see any issues, really, because everyone will have spent the time just understanding how you need to ride these tyres. And that's where now it's a case of getting the most from them as opposed to thinking, well, it doesn't do X, Y, and Z like a Bridgestone did. I think this season really was a case of, of Michelin having to to figure out or, or to know what it doesn't know. Um, you know, obviously they've been in, in the Grand Prix before, but there's there's... I look at all the difficulties that they've had this season and, and it's it's cases that are outside just the standard deviation of, of things you would expect. It's high temperatures, it's it's the differences in the manufacturers, it's um, you know, struggling maybe with it to be compared to a standard of what, what Bridgestone brought with a strong front tire versus Michelin with a strong rear tire. And also the fact that Bridgestone had so many seasons under its belt to, to make that a well-running machine for for the championship yeah yeah absolutely yeah and i mean you look at um you look at qatar i think i said it back when we were we were doing the the show after the first race of the year um you know michelin had the test there and then they came back for the race and you know look how look how good they were you know look how competitive their times were you know you could say that next time they go to a racetrack after already having a year of experience there they will be that much better um and you know it's uh yeah i think uh, you know you've you've spoken to some riders that were maybe a bit critical at the start of the year maybe guys like bradley smith who were questioning one or two of their decisions in terms of allocation or you know compounds or whatever um you know and on the whole i think you know a lot of the riders have come around to say that yeah they're they're putting a lot of effort into it and you know, um, although they might not be perfect at every track now, um, you know, uh, for, for the first year, they've done a decent job. Maybe Stephen and Neil, you guys can can give me your predictions for for how things will go for KTM at, at Valencia, both for the wild card and also for the testing with with Bradley and Paul. Yeah, their only target is just not to not to blow up engines, try and get as much mileage as possible and understand exactly what it takes over a Grand Prix weekend, how you split up your debrief times, how you prepare the bikes, how you get yourself ready from Friday to Saturday to Sunday and uh, just to get those dynamics into your head. If they can have a full weekend where they don't have technical issues, it really doesn't matter if they're five seconds off the pace or you know, two seconds off the pace. They just need to be able to use it to get themselves ready for Qatar next year. Yeah, I think um, they've probably got a very good example to compare themselves to with Suzuki coming in 2014. Um, whenever they wildcarded at the end of that season, I remember they had a lot of uh, mechanical issues throughout the season. I think a couple of engine blow-ups and then they had to detune the engine to a certain extent to not use the engine to its full capabilities in the post-race you know, in the post uh, race test. Um, I'm sure they've got a, a target in mind of how far they want to be back of, you know, the fastest bikes. Um, but yeah, as Steve said, getting some mileage under their belt, um, not looking too silly in terms of, you know, blow ups or, or mechanical issues and being mildly competitive. Um, we know that the bike has a lot of power. Um, and I think it's about harnessing that and seeing how they can, how they can harness that around, you know, a tight track at like Valencia, um, will be quite interesting, uh, you know, as opposed to Austria where they tested where it's, you know, fast straights and, um, you know, the, the harnessing that power wasn't such an issue there. So yeah, getting some mileage under their belt, 
being in the sort of ballpark of two, 2.5 seconds off the fastest guys, I think, you know, would be a, would be a solid start for them. Good, good. All right, boys. Well, I'm looking at the clock and it's about that time, unless you have uh, any other points you want to bring up. Speak now or uh, forever <laughs> hold your peace. <laughs> no, I'm good, JB. Yeah, I think I was right. Well, uh, I guess we'll just make a, a quick thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in for another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, give us your feedback on iTunes and SoundCloud, and uh, be sure to follow Neil and Steven and myself, and as well as David and Tony on our various uh, social media and uh, online endeavors. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, see you next time. The levels are going. Yeah. Hello. Okay, that's... We'll yeah. talk normally there, Neil. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I'm at my... Right.